This is Chatter. I'm David Priest. In this President's Day episode, historian Lindsay Travinsky on President's Day and Washington's legacy. Historians and scholars can't back away from the public if we want them to know our work. We can't expect them to find it on their own. There was a concept in the 1790s that the best men were supposed to serve. Service was a part of your sacrifice. It was a part of Republican virtue. Again, this is little r, Republican virtue. And it wasn't supposed to be fun. It wasn't supposed to enrich you. The concept of a peaceful transition of power. Until last year, most Americans took that for granted. Adams, Jefferson, Washington did not. Lindsay, thank you for joining us on Chatter. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I have wanted to to talk to you for a long time about some of the topics that I think we'll end up diving into because you've produced some just really amazing and readable work on the early presidents in particular, but applying that history to our modern times in a way that I think is really helpful to people to realize in many ways we've we've been here before, we've learned lessons. What, what can we learn from those lessons to avoid doing the worst things we've done before and maybe, just maybe, pick up on some of the good things we've done before and apply them in the modern context? Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. That is my goal. The sort of, you know, motivating force behind my scholarship is to explain how we got to where we are and the origins of our political system and the institution's especially because I just think the more I study it, the more I'm convinced that so much of our system is crafted in this early period and still Mm -hmm. remains with us today because the presidency is, so much of it is unwritten and is based on custom and norm. And that has to start somewhere and has to be carefully cultivated and crafted and taught. And so we, it's really important that we know where those precedents and those traditions come from. How much of a challenge is it for you as a historian to balance that? On the one hand, you're really focused on the history, and there's this constant pull from society and people like me to say, make it relevant to what's happening right now. And obviously, some subsections of history are easier for that than others. You know, the ancient Parthian Empire, a little bit harder to connect to the headlines of the day. Um, your material makes it a bit easier, but how do you how do you deal with that balance between really focusing on the history for the sake of the history, and how much do you feel there is a calling to make the world a better place with that history? Well, I think each historian probably has to give a different answer um, to that question. I personally care an awful lot about speaking to a public audience and helping them understand our current moment. I don't want to write a book and have 10 people read it. That That is fine for some people, and they're okay with that strategy, but it seems to me to be an awful lot of work for only 10 readers. And so, you know, I want to tell a story that is compelling and interesting, but feels useful, feels like there is a concrete so what. That question is often in the back of my mind is why is this a story that people need to know? And then I sort of fall on that spectrum depending on what type of writing I'm doing. Now, if I'm writing an op-ed, obviously it's going to be a little bit more closely targeted towards our current moment. And if I'm writing a book, I want 
that to be a little bit more subtle. Occasionally, I will nod to present day events, but I don't want to do so too heavily for two reasons. One, I don't want to date the work. I want it to be sort of more timeless and apply to multiple different time periods and readers. But also, I want people to be able to enjoy the story and not feel that they're getting pulled out of it quite so much. And then if they notice those parallels, or if they want to talk about those parallels, I'm happy to have further conversation about them. Right. Do you find that your op-eds, and we'll link to some in, in the show notes, you've written for the, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, I believe, the Bulwark, I know. And do, do you find that people who are studying some of the same time periods you are look at you differently because you are more of a public presence that you're you're not just putting your head down and focusing on the you know the 1790s but you're out there talking about the 1990s and of course the 2020s yeah there's definitely a little bit of i don't know if i would say eyebrow raising but it's that sort of work is not the work that is not desirable, that's the wrong word, but you don't receive a whole lot of credit for it in the traditional Mm -hmm. academic world. And the traditional academic tenure model doesn't provide a whole lot of points for that type of labor. I happen to think it's really important and I'm not on the tenure track, so it gives me freedom to not care (laughs) what maybe tenure committees would think about. It's liberating. Um, So yeah, so it's, you know, it's kind of a luxury to be able to say this is the work that I find really compelling and I find really important and I'm going to spend my time trying to reach some of these people. I think some historians probably think I'm nuts for, you know, spending time doing that or opening myself up to the really fascinating emails and direct messages that I sometimes get in response to those op-eds of which I'm sure you receive similar uh, hate mail and, you know, really, really thoughtful. And I say thoughtful in the most sarcastic way responses. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think some historians really understand the value. And I think more and more people are recognizing that historians and scholars can't back away from the public if we want them to know our work. We can't expect them to find it on their own. We need to reach out. So I know you had a great conversation with Joanne Freeman. She's obviously someone who has modeled this to great effect. Heather Cox Richardson is an incredible inspiration as well. And that, I think, demonstrates the impact historians can have if they want to. And honestly, you, you're, you're starting to play that role for others as well, because you know, writing a, a book like the one you did on the cabinet, really diving deep into the origins of it, shows that somebody can do that very serious research and, and scholarship that, that contributes to the, the academy. But but also speaks to wider issues in our own times. So I'm, I'm glad to chat with you, if, if not only for that, to nerd out on presidential history, because that's just fun on, on President's Day here. So let's talk about President's Day. Uh, here, here we have a holiday, which I think is informally known as President's Day. Um, or when did it start to become known as President's Day? Because when I grew up, which is a long time ago, I remember having confusion even then because I remember some people talked about Washington's birthday and some people talked about Lincoln's birthday, which was near there. And then at one point, I think they kind of just pushed it all together and called it President's Day, which to me kind of cheapened the honoring of Washington and, and Lincoln because I didn't feel the need to celebrate you know, Andrew Johnson or John Tyler as much as uh, Washington or Lincoln. 
So what's what's your experience with President's Day and the value of it as a holiday? It's a great question. And I think your confusion is pretty widespread and is actually reflected in the naming practices in the various states. So no one really has a clear answer about what it should be. The way it developed actually builds right off of my scholarship. So as soon as Washington was in office, his fellow citizens started celebrating his birthday. And some commentators at the time did observe that this was kind of shockingly monarchical behavior to celebrate the, you know, executive's day of birth as though that was somehow a, you know, God-given event. Um, But nonetheless, they celebrated Washington's birthday. And then once he retired, they continued to do so, which infuriated John Adams to no small degree. And so these traditions of celebrating Washington's birthday were very based, very much based on custom. They were very local. There were sometimes state celebrations, but it was really dependent on the community and, and what they felt like doing at any given point. So that shifted in the late 19th century. In 1879, Congress passed an act that created a federal holiday honoring Washington, and it was always on his birthday. And this was actually the first holiday that celebrated just one person. But as we know, you know, dates shifted. And so it was kind of confusing to know what day that was going to fall on. And so in the 1970s, when the federal government began to sort of reorganize some of these holidays so that they would be on Monday for a lot of labor reasons, and that's a really fascinating story, they created the Uniform Monday Holiday Act and moved what was the official recognition of his birthday to the third Monday of February, which usually falls between the 15th and the 21st. Now, this had the benefit of sort of putting it smack dab in between Lincoln and Washington's birthday, as you noted. So some people started calling it Washington and Lincoln Day. Some people sort of unofficially started calling it President's Day. And that name sort of stuck once Nixon issued an executive order on February 21st, 1971, officially proclaiming it President's Day. But legally, it's still Washington's birthday. So that's where some of this confusion comes in, because various different states have adopted different permutations of this, including the weirdest one, I think, which is Alabama. And they Mm. call it Washington and Jefferson Day, even though Jefferson's birthday isn't until April. So there is no good answer. I agree with you that President's Day as a concept does kind of cheapen it because we've had a lot of mediocre presidents. We've had some outright terrible (laughs) <laughs> well, I was going to yeah, say we've had, had some, some terrible ones. I'm glad you said that. In. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean we've had some mediocre ones, and then we've had some like outright awful ones. And do we really want to lump them in with some of the big names? Right. The reason I think President's Day as a construct is actually helpful is this is the most powerful office in the federal government. It's probably the most powerful office in the world. The individual that holds that authority has the ability to shape foreign policy and security and domestic policy and political culture, has the ability to create change for incredible good or harm for Mm -hmm. a lot of people. And Mm -hmm. understanding the importance of that person that fills the office and and what they're capable of doing or what what they choose to do once in office is something that I don't think we should ever lose sight of. Yeah, almost like it's... The, the presidency day, not the president's day to, to take it away. That would from make a lot more those, sense. 
individuals and make it more about the institution and and why the institution matters and what it says about us as as a country and a society to have this role and and how it has evolved over the years. Now that's interesting, but it's less catchy. That's a long title for a day. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Day. There's also a bit of a tension there with Washington's birthday, isn't there? Because Washington himself being so self-conscious about the precedents he set, and I'm sure we'll we'll address much of that later, but he he wasn't somebody who wanted to be put up on on a pedestal at the at the level of the average political leader at the time and I would even suggest now and the fact that his birthday would be this exalted day probably would be a bit uncomfortable for him in some ways yeah he was pretty uncomfortable with it he had a unparalleled reputation and was very careful to try and protect that Mm-hmm. He did have a bit of an ego about that, but he also had a real humility and an understanding of the difference between a monarchy and executive. And he felt that too much glorification of him as an individual was kind of inappropriate for a republic. And I mm-hmm. sort of started off my my story about President's Day with that note. It's yeah. weird that we celebrate these people like they are somehow not people. They're, they're something else. They're more extraordinary than sort of the average human. Well, Washington is such a, a fascinating figure inherently, but, but also be, because of that, because of the fact that he knew he was setting an example for his successors, which he hoped would be many and wise and fruitful. But he also had an administration to run. And there, there were sometimes were tensions there, but a lot of the things that he developed ad hoc ended up becoming institutions, ended up becoming the way that we think presidents are supposed to operate. But it need not have been that way. The Constitution is gloriously vague in some areas in a way to allow that kind of adaptation. And I think it's a fascinating story to to look back at that. And of course, you've focused extensively on one part of that, which is which is the cabinet. Talk, talk about the origins of of the cabinet before the the United States, because it is a weird term. Um, I think of kitchen cabinets, and then I think of the the political cabinet in executive executive sense. But I don't quite understand the two coming together. What were the English origins of the both the name of the cabinet and its use as an advisor to the executive? This is such a great example of how the English language is so weird and has evolved in such strange ways over many, many hundreds of years. So in the British political system, there were there was, and there still is today, but there was a Privy Council that was sort of the main center of parliamentary authority. And as Parliament grew in its power and the king diminished, now it was never in the 16th and 17th century and the 18th century, the king was not a figurehead like we sort of think of today. But as parliament grew in authority, the Privy Council was the main section that sort of worked with the king to craft policy, to run the empire. And it was really where most of the power resided. However, as the Privy Council grew, it became an inefficient body for the king to obtain advice. Anyone who's been in a meeting with too many voices knows what it's like to try and get a lot of people to agree. And so the king started meeting with his preferred advisors 
in a small little room off of the privy council chambers. And that small little room was called the king's cabinet. At the time, cabinet meant closet or you know mm-hmm. small space for prayer mm-hmm. or study. It was a private room that most people didn't have access to. So this group became known as the King's Cabinet Council based on where they met. And then eventually council was dropped and it just became known as the King's Cabinet. So this is a shift between a physical space to a group of people, but that physical space connotation of privacy behind closed doors, sort of informal, continued Mm. to convey that meaning to this new word. Well, so I'm kind of glad they chose cabinet for that because if we would be calling this institution over the last 200 plus years in American history the closet <laughs> that just sound, doesn't sound as catchy to me. <laughs> it it doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? No, not really. But correct me if I'm wrong, but my my dim recollection of American revolutionary history is that the the English cabinet was surprisingly unpopular that things like the T act, the stamp act, and especially the coercive acts that colonists blamed the cabinet around the King and thought that it was their fault. And only later came to transfer that, that aggression uh, towards the King when it was clear that the King was in fact in line with his cabinet. Do I remember that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it it made sense why the colonists, we'll call them the colonists for the moment, um, why Mm -hmm. they thought this, because legislation and policy did typically originate with parliament at this point, or Mm -hmm. primarily with the Privy Council and the cabinet, because those were the leaders of whatever party was in power. So the colonists really blamed these people for what they thought was turning the king against them or keeping him blind to the implications of these policies for the colonists. To the point where in 1775, when British regulars were in Boston and the war has essentially already begun because we have the battles of Lexington and Concord, locals referred to the regulars as parliament's troops. They weren't the king's troops. They were parliament's troops. Now, of course, Later, the king went on to share plenty of blame and that that hatred was transferred. But there was a deep distrust of of the British cabinet because there was a sense that there was a complete lack of transparency about what was happening in this room. The colonists Mm -hmm. knew that it existed. They knew that there were people who were making decisions, but it wasn't clear who those people were, how they got to positions of authority. They weren't elected into the cabinet. There were certainly no you know, meeting minutes taken. And so that lack of transparency meant it was really hard for people to hold them accountable. And that was the real problem. If, if one were inclined towards a more musical interpretation, one might say that they were concerned about not being in the room where it happened, maybe? <laughs> Yeah, yes, that is correct. And we are going to make that joke several times because it will come up again and again and again. And it still comes up again and again and again. It's very important. It. So if then so you have this sense in the in the colonies still, but then the fledgling nation that the cabinet, that this secret council is is a bad thing. But the the men, and they they were all men, who got together at the Constitutional Convention. Were, were quite cognizant that they would need an effective government. And so they, they considered different types of essentially cabinets or executive councils, but then for some reason decided not to put them in the constitution. Can you talk through that a bit? What did they consider doing? What structure did they consider putting around the president formally? And 
why did they get to nothing in the end? Well, I think it's really important to remember that the Constitutional Convention met in the summer of 1787. The war had only ended four years prior, which is really not a very long time in the scope of history. And most of the people who were at the Constitutional Convention had played a sizable role in either the state or congressional governments, or they had been in a diplomatic or military position. So they had very good reason to be distrusting of institutions that resembled the British government in any way. They knew that most Americans still really hated the British. And so they had to be very careful of those concerns and trying to find a balance between a strong federal government with a powerful executive that didn't look too much like the king was a really, really tricky middle ground to find. And the councils played a big role in that debate and that consideration. So they they thought of a couple of different options. One was an option that was almost identical to the cabinet that ended up emerging in Washington's administration. And they rejected this proposal outright because they felt that it would lead the president to surround himself with cronies or friends, and it would allow for corruption and this lack of transparency that was so important to them to preserve. The other option was a council of state, not unlike the councils that were in the state governments, but those were really intended to limit executive authority. They were usually appointed by the legislature, they were paid by the legislature, and the governor was required to obtain their advice and their consent for policy. So it was a really, it was a limiting factor as opposed to just an advisory board. So the convention very explicitly rejected all of these proposals and did not want to have a set structure in the constitution. Now, that being said, they, they were also reasonable. They understood that no one person could have all of the answers to all questions, and the president would need advice and support. And so instead, they came up with two other options, which they felt would better preserve safe advisors and then the transparency that they were concerned about. The first option was, they're both in Article 2, and it says that the president may request written advice from the department secretaries. Mm-hmm. Now, the president may request, is not obligated to request, and is not obligated to follow that advice. So that was very carefully crafted. And the advice is supposed to be in writing so that there's evidence about who has said what, so that they can hold advisors responsible if they are idiots, basically. Mm -hmm. The second option, also in Article 2, is the piece that we often hear today that the Senate will advise and consent on treaties, foreign appointments, and other sort of executive appointments. At the time, that was intended to mean quite literally the advice part. The Senate was expected to be a council of foreign policy. They were quote-unquote safe advisors because they were selected by the states who could, in theory, be trusted to pick smart, reasonable, knowledgeable, experienced men that would give good advice for the president. And there were only 22 senators in 1789, so it sounds a little bit less ridiculous than 100, which obviously would be a preposterous council of advice. So that was really what their their expectations were and what they hoped would provide a good balance between advice and preserving the virtues and values that they wanted in the system. Yeah, I think that's fascinating that they explicitly rejected a cabinet that one of the one of the alternatives was well we have this thing called the senate and it will be an august group of people who can provide such advice and it's small enough that it it could function that way 
And then a couple hundred years later, we end up having an executive cabinet, which has under most modern presidents, just as many members as that original Senate. <laughs> very, very interesting how it, how it evolved. Now, George Washington, of course, was chairing the, the Constitutional Convention and was aware of all of these debates and everything that was going on, even if he wasn't speaking up much about it. But he entered the presidency, noting, obviously, that the delegates intended the Senate to advise, especially on foreign affairs, uh, national security matters. Um, and he tried that. But most people don't know the story of what happened with George Washington and the Senate. Uh, I think it was pretty early in July or maybe August of 1789. He went to the Senate for advice. What did he go for advice on and uh, how did that work out? Yeah, this is one of my all-time favorite Washington stories because it demonstrates, you know, his very good intentions to govern according to the written dictates of the Constitution. As you said, he had been at the convention. He was there every day. He didn't miss a single session. So he knew very clearly what they expected of him. In August of 1789, so just a couple of months into his presidency, he had to send commissioners to an upcoming summit between representatives from North Carolina, South Carolina, the Creek and Cherokee nations, and then, of course, the federal government. And conversations and interactions with Native American nations were considered to be foreign policy at the time because, of course, Native American nations, in theory, had sovereignty right. that right. the government sometimes respected and sometimes didn't. So he had never sent commissioners abroad in this way before, and he had never crafted instructions for peace commissioners. So he decided this would be a good opportunity to get the Senate's advice on what those instructions should say, how the summit should go, things like that. And did he prepare Did he prepare the Senate? That is, did he just show up one day and say, I want your advice? Or did he let them know he was coming and send them materials in advance? Oh, he definitely gave them homework. So he met with first he met with a committee to discuss how this meeting would go. So they had to figure out how he would enter, how he would be introduced, where he would sit. These details don't really seem important until you have to make all of these decisions for the first time. And then all of a sudden you realize like just how much there is to decide. So he met with a committee to plan out the logistics of the day. He then sent all of the pre-existing treaties between the United States and Native American nations so that the Senate could have a good sense of what had already been decided. Mm -hmm. And then on the day of, he brought with him the acting Secretary of War, Henry Knox, oh. who had overseen all of these treaties and could answer any questions that the senators might have. So he really gave them the very best <laughs> possible opportunity to know what was happening, to be well-informed, and to hopefully provide the sort of feedback he was looking for. And how did the assembled senators uh, react? Obviously, here's here's the commander-in-chief who's coming on an important foreign policy, national security issue, bringing along, as you said, the acting secretary. They've had copies of treaties. How did they react to this opportunity? Well, they, um, they understood the importance of it, the significance of this moment. And when he arrived, he had an address that sort of explained or summarized the situation. And then he had a series of questions that he hoped would prompt 
input and debate, the type of same questions that he had regularly brought to his councils of war during the revolution mm-hmm. to great effect. And that had worked really well as a, as a model for him. And anyone who has ever taught a class would understand exactly what happened after he read those questions. The senators avoided eye contact. They shuffled their papers. They sort of did everything possible not to be called on are still the same strategies students sometimes use today. And just as an <laughs> FYI, teachers always know what you're doing. It's not subtle. Um, so, you know, finally, one of the senators recognizing that this was a, a precedent setting moment and wrote as such in his diary, William McClay of Pennsylvania, hmm. uh, stood up and said that, you know, the issue was new for them and they would like to study it in more detail. And could the president come back the following week for their advice. Wait, wait, wait. So, so the president has sent them materials in advance. Mm-hmm. He's he's made the trip over. They've done all the logistics of how this is going to be framed. He's he's even brought presumably a very busy man, the acting secretary, to come with him. Mm-hmm. He's asking questions that he has prepped them for. He's expecting them to engage in a discussion to give him advice, and and they tell him, "Sorry, we're busy. Um, <laughs> can you come back again later?" Uh, yes, exactly. And your incredulity at the situation was matched and if not exceeded by Washington's because he lost his temper and he stood up and he yelled, this defeats every purpose of my being here. But, you know, louder and he's he's much bigger than I am and he's much scarier because at this point he's probably the most famous man in the world. He's certainly one of the most well-respected. So you can imagine sort of the terror that his anger instilled in the senators. And I would imagine that uh, some of them probably came to regret it because how often did Washington go back to the Senate for advice in this manner after that? Uh, Never again. He did go back the following week to get their recommendation. He promised to do so, and he did. But then he never went back and asked them for their advice. And by my count, no other president has ever done so. Wow. Okay. So Washington tried to use one of the channels that, that the, the drafters of the convention had, had put before him. And obviously it was an inauspicious start for, for that channel. But what about another one? Um, I was a little bit surprised. I saw you write somewhere, maybe it was in your book, that Washington actually thought the Supreme Court could serve this function for him. Yeah. So, you know, Washington was in the unique situation of appointing the entire first Supreme Court. So Mm -hmm. he selected people who he either knew well, like John Jay, or people who he really respected how they had interpreted and supported the Constitution during the ratification process. Mm -hmm. And these were brilliant legal minds. They were from states across the country and were used to grappling with complex legal questions. And so there were moments in the presidency, especially in 1793, when the neutrality crisis broke out, which was when France declared war on Great Britain. The United States said that it was staying out of it. But as anyone who has studied neutrality knows, it's much more complicated than just saying we're not fighting. There are a lot of both domestic and foreign policy implications about how you force people to respect that decision. And so Washington thought it would be really helpful to have the Supreme Court justices input about some of those questions of how to figure out how to enforce that decision. And if someone broke with those rules, you know, who was supposed to enforce it, who, what sort of 
court was supposed to hear that case, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And initially, John Jay was sort of on board with providing that sort of support. He regularly consulted with Washington and Hamilton behind the scenes and I think had a probably different interpretation of separation of powers than we do in the 21st century. I think that's, um, a, that's a really interesting point because our modern sensibilities are are almost violated by the sense that there'd be this consulting with the Supreme Court um, because the way that the institutions have become defined. But at the time, you pointed out, this is the first time this had happened. And the, the men on the Supreme Court were not decidedly different than the men in the Senate or the men being brought into the cabinet. They may have had different specializations and different legal training, but not dramatically so. And going going to John Jay, who ends up playing a major diplomatic role for the administration, but going to John Jay and others who happened to be nominated for the Supreme Court would, would not seem weird on issues of national security, foreign policy, things outside of pure constitutional questions the way that they would appear that way today. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, when we think about today, when we think about careers and career paths and we think about justices, they typically decide early on that that's something that they're going to go for. They create and craft a um, career driven towards that end goal and avoid things usually like state politics and federal politics because that would make them ineligible by a sort of our political customs at the time. That was not true in 1789. And, you know, John Jay had served in a variety of different positions prior to becoming chief justice, including the Secretary of Foreign Affairs for the Confederation Congress. Mm -hmm. He had served in state positions. He had been a diplomat. He had helped negotiate the treaty that ended the Revolutionary War. And so it was pretty normal for people to sort of bounce back and forth between state government, federal government, diplomatic positions, judicial positions, because so many of the people had legal training as sort of a first step towards becoming a public figure. So that in and of itself was not unusual. Mm -hmm. However, there had been some pretty explicit conversations about the importance of separation of powers during the Mm -hmm. Constitutional Convention. Now, what that meant and how that worked was still sort of fuzzy and in negotiations. So Jay had no problem providing this advice, but his fellow justices felt that it would be inappropriate. And so he basically ceded to to their preference and said that the court as a whole couldn't Mm -hmm. provide input, although he continued to do so behind the scenes. Okay, so Washington, let's give him credit for trying, right? He, he, as president, realized, which is not as minor as it may sound, he realized he did not have all the answers. Uh, some of his successors have thought much more that they did know better than everyone <laughs> around them, and they knew more than the experts in the room. But Washington, among other things, did realize he didn't have all the answers and he needed good advice. So you've told us, you know, he, he went to the Senate. And that was, let's say, disappointing. He went to at least John Jay, but tried to go to the rest of the Supreme Court, and that wasn't going to happen. I know he also had some informal advisors, and he talked to department secretaries uh, one-on-one. But you have to remember that there weren't that many executive departments, right? There was war, treasury, uh, foreign affairs, or state department, as we call it. Um, And that's really it. There's an attorney general, but no Department of Justice yet. So he could talk to each one of them individually. But 
when it came to getting a, a body of people together to bounce ideas off of each other, to build on each other's observations and insights, he'd really exhausted the tools at his disposal before turning back to the very thing that the drafters of the Constitution had chosen not to include, the cabinet. Uh, when did he first pull together the group that we would now call a cabinet? And what was that that meeting for? Well, I'm so glad you asked it in this particular way, because Washington did not convene a cabinet meeting until November 26, 1791. So that's two and a half years into his presidency. Yeah. And I sort of nodded to his councils of war experience during the revolution earlier, but that had worked really well for him. He liked bringing together multiple advisors, getting their conflicting viewpoints, letting them sort of duke it out with each other and sitting back and observing. And so there's no doubt in my mind that that was a concept that he was familiar with and thought about and yet didn't for two and a half years. And, and let me let me ask you something here. That the fact that he did that when he was commander in chief and had the war councils, he he generally fostered open conversation. He he wanted it to be, if not a social atmosphere itself, but he wanted there to be social relations among the people that were doing this. He expected respect, but he did not want people to defer to whatever he said. This stood him apart presumably at least from Cornwallis on the British side, but also from many other so-called leaders at the time who who saw leadership as you you do what I say and I say I want your advice, but I just want yes men around me. That wasn't Washington's experience with these councils of war. So his concept coming into this first cabinet meeting presumably built on that experience. Yeah, I would actually argue that it sets him apart from sort of leaders, most leaders historically and even today, because when people get to positions of power, typically, not to paint too broad of a brush, but typically they have fairly large egos and they're usually pretty smart and they think that they often have the correct answer. Now, Washington was a very flawed man. He was by no means perfect in any way. But I think his greatest strength, as both as a general and then as a president, was his recognition of his own flaws, his own inabilities, what he didn't know. And he was not afraid to bring people together, to ask for their input, and surround himself with people who knew things that he didn't, who had experienced things that he didn't, and could provide input that supplemented his own knowledge. That is an incredible strength that most people are not really comfortable saying, I need help, please help me. And as you said, he didn't show up to most councils of war and he didn't show up to most cabinet meetings with a set plan in mind about what he wanted to do. He showed up and said, what do you think I should do? And then, you know, made a decision. And once he made the decision, it was pretty clear that that's what was going to happen and people fell in line. But that takes remarkable sort of self-awareness and strength to be able to position oneself in that way. Mm -hmm. And am I right that this first cabinet meeting that he pulled, pulled them together and got advice, this wasn't about some esoteric administrative procedure within the executive office. Uh, it was a foreign relations issue, right? It was. And, you know, like today, when there's a, a foreign policy crisis or a diplomatic crisis, it very rarely just has to do with the State Department. There are usually implications today for the Defense Department, the Treasury Department, the Department of Justice, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Homeland Security. And back then it was no different. So this first meeting was 
Washington basically wanted to do a reset and to think about the status of the relationship between the United States and France, Great Britain, and Spain, which were the three big European powers at the time, the three potential trade partners, the three potential allies or enemies in a diplomatic conflict. And when you are talking about issues that are that all-encompassing, they're going to touch on matters of war, state, finance, and then, of course, the attorney general. So it made sense that when he was talking about these things, he wanted to have all of their input. And Washington liked an efficient process. So the thought of talking to all four of them individually, then having to sort of share what each thought with the other just didn't really work. And again, you know, going back to how the councils worked, he liked a sort of combative discussion style. It suited him to allow the various participants to poke holes in each other's arguments and sort of battle it out. That was helpful for his decision-making process. And that's, I think, very clear because we have amazing, uh, what looks like live video of a couple of his cabinet meetings where there are these cabinet battles that actually they wrap out their issues. <laughs> I didn't even know rap existed as a form <laughs> back then, but thankfully, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda brought that forward to us. So the cabinet meetings, they were lively um, and and somewhat physically uncomfortable uh, because of where they were, right? Yeah, they were. Now, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily think that they were conversing in rap, but um, Lin-Manuel Miranda does a really good job of capturing the intensity, the displeasure, the often animosity that accompanied these conversations. Yeah, I was stunned in particular by the the meeting of the cabinet in, I guess it was April 1793, when they were discussing, you know, what to do about the French and honoring the treaty, that looking at some of the notes from the meeting, and then listening to cabinet battle number two, I believe, from the Hamilton soundtrack and yeah. play, it's it's remarkably accurate. Now, obviously, it leaves out some nuance. It adds a few elements. But in terms of the contours of the argument, and and I think even if some of the language, it's it's quite good popular history. It really, it really is. And you know, um, I personally think that Hamilton the musical is such a gift because it's brought an interest in this period to all new generations. And I've never had anyone be like, I saw the musical. This is exactly what happened. Most people say, I saw the musical, like what really happened or what else happened or what was right and what was wrong. And what a gift as, to open up yeah, that kind I mean, of inquisitive nature. Just That's great. Such a gift. Yeah. Um, but yes, you're right. So the, the, the meetings, the cabinet meetings were uncomfortable. So the, the seat of federal government moved from New York City to Philadelphia in 1790. Washington rented a large house from his friend Robert Morris. It was one of the largest residences in the city at the time. And there was a small room on the second floor, which was his private study. It was about 15 by 21 feet. Uh, by contemporary standards, it would have been considered to sort of be a hoarder's room. We would have been very uncomfortable with the amount of furniture in this space mm -hmm. because it was multi-purpose. He had several large mahogany bookcases. He had a five-foot wide French desk that had writing surfaces that opened on both sides for both oh. he and his private secretaries to work on correspondence. 
He had a big globe. His dressing table was in there. So he would have received his morning shave from Christopher Shields and had his hair done every morning in that space. Um, there was a stove. There would have been tables, a table and chairs for the secretaries when they did come in to meet. So if we're talking about all of this furniture and a 15 by 21 foot room, Mm-hmm. Five guys, and we know that at least some of them were pretty large by today's standards or the standards of the time. Right. And a lot of these meetings took place in the summer in Philadelphia. Ooh. No air conditioning. Anyone who's been in Philadelphia in August knows what that feels like. Mm-hmm. They would meet for several hours per day, sometimes five days a week. And at this point, Hamilton and Jefferson despised each other. So you can just imagine what the atmosphere in that room would have felt like. And, you know, they did not, they weren't particularly subtle about it either. And in the notes that they left, um, you know, Jefferson hated these meetings. He referred to them as cockfights. (laughs) Not his style. He, he would (laughs) rather, he would rather do the battle of ideas uh, behind the scenes in many cases or in cabals outside. I mean, one of the things about Jefferson, and if you'll indulge me here, one of the things that I've really enjoyed and been disappointed by in the last 10 years or so as I've really jumped into presidential history is how some presidents, the more you learn about them, the more impressed you are. And there, there are a few of these. And surprisingly for me, some of them are the actual icons that the more I learned about George Washington, the more that I learn about Abraham Lincoln, the more impressed I am um, because I learn that they were in fact flawed human beings that I didn't get in my fourth grade class, but, but they're great because they overcame many of those flaws and their greatness uh, in fact overrides some of their continuing flaws. Um, there are some who rose to the occasions in ways that people didn't expect. You know, Chester Arthur, who was just a footnote in in my mind. The more I've read about his presidency, he actually beat expectations and did a, a if not a great job, a remarkably good job, given how woefully underprepared and how woefully underestimated he was. But then there are some. That the more well, I can, I add about a third them, category to that, oh, which please, is please. which are presidents that you know maybe don't have great presidencies, but as people, they're fascinating and really heartwarming to learn about. So I, I put both of the atoms in in this category. Oh, yeah. um, although I'm gonna, I will battle for the next several years about John Adams' presidency being underranked, but. Mm-hmm. Not, their president, neither of their presidencies was the you know high moment of their public career, but they're so entertaining and they are so endearing in their horribly flawed way, and it's just such a joy to sort of see their own self deprecation and their sarcasm and mm-hmm. their wittiness, but also you know I mean John Adams loved his wife and had a great yeah. relationship with his wife, so there are things about them that you can really in- latch onto, even if their presidencies weren't top notch. And 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 John Quincy Adams being, you know, such an important figure for American history. You, you know, you don't have the Monroe Doctrine without JQA. Nope. You you don't have much of the founding of what we would consider the the American state. Uh, and yet his presidency was one of the least impressive parts of, of his career. So I agree with you. There's those that have those quirks to them. And it's, it's and the disappointing. <laughs> yeah. The, the disappointing side is that there are some that the more I've learned, um, I, I, I don't, I don't respect them as much. Um, Andrew Jackson is, is one that, you know, I grew up, he, well, he was on the currency for God's sake. So of course he must be a good person. 
And I just, I, I don't really like Andrew Jackson very much anymore. Woodrow Wilson is somebody who has gone down in my estimation. And honestly, I put Thomas Jefferson here and it's not, it's not to diminish some of his accomplishments. The founding of the university of Virginia, that's a damn good thing. Um, his, his appreciation for science and his, um, his kind of Renaissance man persona that that's great. But when it comes to the way he acted in the Washington administration alone, I just find him to be just a person I would not want to be around. Washington made clear he wanted these conversations to be private. These were for the benefit of him to make the tough decisions that the president had to make. He wanted the best advice, and he could only do that if people would would hold the conversations in confidence. Thomas Jefferson basically said, I'm sure better words than I will say, basically said to Washington, yep, absolutely. You know, I, I will, I will do that. And then turned right around and blabbed about everything that was going on in order to undercut Hamilton or in order to set himself up later. And I just find that to be both cowardly, no, not being willing to tell George Washington what he actually was doing and take the hit for it. Um, and very disrespectful of this person who had taken a job that he really didn't want. Um, as long as he, you know, he wanted to retire, but he took the job of the presidency and he needed some help doing it. And here's somebody undercutting him while he's doing so. So that's my diatribe against Thomas Jefferson. I don't know if you agree that, that Jefferson doesn't look as good when you really examine some of the things he did in the 1790s. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I've I've gone on similar rants. He's one of those figures that if you look under the hood in the Washington administration, especially, it's hard to not come away with a real sense of hypocrisy. Not that hypocrisy is new in politics, but, right. um, you know, I think that he, you know, and to add a couple of examples to that, which are, you know, I think some of the more shocking examples he drafted a series of resolutions to condemn Hamilton, and mm-hmm. they were put forth on the House floor. Of course, every they were, in theory, anonymous resolutions, but everyone knew who had written them, and he was still in office. So not only did he not do a very good job of keeping that anonymous, but that's not a great symbol about you know administrative unity. He hired uh, Philip Freneau to craft and create a new newspaper that would basically bash the administration. And because newspapers were not particularly, like today, not particularly financially um, valuable for the editor, he hired the editor as a translator in the State Department to give that person some income. Of course, the only language that translator spoke was French. And as someone who had lived in France for a long time, Jefferson needed no particular assistance with that language. Hmm. Um, The thing that's, you know, interesting about Jefferson and Washington is that until he died, Jefferson did have regard for Washington and spoke highly of him and later kind of absolved Washington of all responsibility, said that he kind of was getting a little bit old and senile and Hamilton really took advantage of it. So he always blamed Hamilton for all of these things and continued to speak quite positively about Washington's legacy, which in many ways, it's almost worse. It's like, if you don't like what he's doing, just be critical of it. Don't say he's great out of one side of your mouth and then, you know, criticize him out of the other. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely somebody in the, in the mix who doesn't, who doesn't, and and Hamilton isn't perfect either in these, but definitely a different 
perspective uh, comes from from looking at the details. So the cabinet, I mean, I want to move on to how the cabinet has evolved for other presidents too, but a couple of other things from this important time. The Washington administration did set very important precedents across the board, but especially in national security and foreign policy. Uh, one of them had to do with with something even more broad, which is executive privilege. It did have to do with executive papers relating, I believe, to treaty negotiations. Um, what was the cabinet's role in that, and what was the precedent that was established? Yeah, well, you're right, and you said, you know, early on that so much of the Constitution is vague, and especially Article Two. So much is just not written down because. One, Washington was sitting in the room and it must have been incredibly awkward to talk about the limitations that you're going to foist on someone. But also, you know, they didn't, they were very aware that they didn't know what was necessarily going to come down the road. And so they wanted to give some flexibility to the people that were in office, which is one of the reasons that this job that Washington took on was so hard because there were so many decisions that had to be made. Um, So in terms of the executive privilege, he early on, Congress had established sort of the concept of creating a committee to investigate something. In 1791, it was a very embarrassing defeat of the U.S. Army under the command of Arthur St. Clair. And they created this committee to investigate the causes of that defeat to try and prevent it from happening again. And they had asked for executive papers from the Treasury and the War Department to sort of figure out what went wrong. And Washington complied. He handed over those papers. He felt that it was important to respect the authority of congressional oversight. Uh, He felt it was really important to comply with, with that principle and establish that principle. A few years later... It came up again. He there were there were several other moments where he turned over papers happily and with with little hesitation. In 1796, the Jay Treaty, which we talked about, John Jay playing this big role. He had negotiated a treaty with Great Britain to resolve some of the lingering issues from the Revolution. Um, I'm of the opinion that the Jay Treaty was by far the best deal that could have been gotten, given that the United States had zero leverage. So the fact that Britain gave any concessions was sort of a magical gift (laughs) achieved by John Jay. However, there was a sense that it sort of sold out Southern interests. And so it was a very unpopular treaty with certain portions of the population, especially the Democratic Republicans in the House of Representatives. And the treaty had a clause that required the creation of a commission, which took money. So the House had to sort of approve to raise these funds. And the Democratic Republicans in the House saw this as an opportunity to try and scuttle it because they were convinced that Washington and Jay had set out to to sell them out. And if they could reveal this wrongdoing, embarrass the administration, then they could maybe get the treaty overturned. So they requested all executive papers pertaining to the negotiations of this treaty. And Washington met with the cabinet. Um, He was thinking about asserting executive privilege for the first time, and he met with the cabinet because he wanted to make sure, A, they unanimously agreed that this was the right choice, which they did. But he also wanted to have proof that they agreed that this was the right choice because this was potentially a very controversial choice, and it Mm -hmm. was precedent setting. And so he wanted to have that backup just in case he needed it. He didn't end up revealing those communications, but he was pretty savvy about making sure he had it when he needed it. And that is an interesting carryover from his time in the Revolutionary War, right? When he he got written advice from his council of war and would basically use that with the Continental Congress saying, hey, look, you, you may not like what happened, but all of these experts in the field were advising me to do it. So don't just blame me. 
And I'm not sure it was a way of deflecting blame entirely as much as also showing I'm doing my job. I'm, I'm taking the advice of others around me and I'm not just doing this on a whim. And that carried forward decades later when he's president. Yeah, I think it was also a real sense that sometimes if you're not in the field, if you're not in the heat of battle, you don't necessarily understand all the factors that go into play. And Congress certainly had no idea what it was talking about sometimes during the war. So it was a way of saying like, look, all of these military professionals agree that this is what we have to do. So just like shush, it was basically his his strategy. And so as president, he sometimes would do the same if he knew he was making a choice that was potentially going to be controversial. So in this instance, um, the cabinet did agree that executive privilege was essential. And so he wrote this letter. And it's probably my favorite letter that he wrote as president, if not my top like three that he wrote in his entire lifetime. Because it is- Let me just say, I love the fact that you rank your favorite letters that Washington (laughs) wrote. That that warms my heart. (laughs) Well, when you spend a lot of time with this correspondence, you do develop favorites. And I will explain why this one is so particularly good. So first, what he basically says is, I have demonstrated a commitment to complying with congressional oversight. I'm not trying to stonewall in principle. Second, this matter is different than the previous requests because it has to do with diplomacy. It, it, he didn't, they, don't, they didn't use the language national security at the time, but that's essentially what he's saying is that this is a matter of national security because it's diplomacy and diplomacy requires secrecy. And if our fellow diplomatic representatives and our, the other nations in the international community don't trust us to keep these communications private, they won't engage with us in communications going forward. This is still a principle we sort of, you know, apply to diplomatic negotiations. No one wants to see how the sausage gets made in this case. So he said, you know, I cannot reveal this in good conscience, knowing what it would do going forward to our diplomatic prospects. He said, however, if this were a matter of impeachment, if this were an impeachment inquiry, that would be a higher bar of oversight meaning he would have to comply with that higher bar and I would turn over these documents since it is not an impeachment inquiry. And he was kind of almost like testing them, which he knew they were never going to do that, but he was he was kind of testing them. Um, because it is not an impeachment inquiry, I am going to respectfully deny the request. Then he goes on to give them a lecture, which I love. And he says, you know, I was at the Constitutional Convention. I was there when we were debating the principles of diplomacy and who is going to be involved in the making of the treaty process. And this is one area where the constitution is pretty explicit. It says that, you know, the president basically makes treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate. Rarely do we have such explicit language in the, in the constitution. And he said, I was there and you are trying to usurp additional authority that is not in the constitution. And if you don't believe me, I have the records from the constitutional convention in the State Department offices, and you are welcome to come look at them. It is the ultimate mic drop throwing of the gauntlet, and it is so sassy. And he's not usually sassy, which is why it's my favorite. It is so good because he he just, he plays the big cards together so well. So yeah, he basically, I was there. You you might know that there was that convention (laughs) and I was that guy sitting there. I mean, maybe well, he doesn't that. do that very often, which is why no, it's so powerful. He's not bragging about people, his role. Not yeah. so subtly. Um, I know what I'm talking about here and I, I know better than any of you. So, so sit down and be quiet. But he said it slightly more artfully, but then by connecting it to the impeachment power, which 
I understood was the whole letter based on Hamilton's advice here um, by suggesting that this request would be appropriate in cases of impeachment. That really put Congress on the defensive because nobody wanted to pursue impeachment against George Washington. They, it's almost like a brushback pitch, you know? Yeah, it's both it's both a brushback pitch and also a confirmation of his commitment to civilian government and his commitment mm-hmm. to the powers of Congress to check the president, but only in, in you know, in this case, in only in very specific areas. So he's right. both affirming their rights and saying, I believe in your power to impeach the president and to investigate the president, but not in this instance. And then, yeah. you know, throws the throws the pitch. So that's that's Washington's assertion. Uh but it need not have been that way because Congress could have fought back. How did they react to this uh to this letter? Well, the problem was even though, you know, Washington had taken some hits at this point and he had received some criticism and there was the growth of the nascent political parties, he was still Washington and he was still, you know, the most famous man in the world and the most respected American sort of broadly and and nationally. And as I said, he didn't make statements like this all that often. Mm -hmm. So when he did, it carried so much weight that it really undercut the Democratic Republican opposition. And over the course of the next several weeks, it basically just disintegrated. And by the end of the congressional session, they decided to apportion the funds and basically let the matter die. Now, as you said, it didn't have to go that way. But this was one of those examples where when Washington really threw his weight behind something, that weight was felt pretty significantly. And thus we have executive privilege now. Uh, thus we have executive privilege now. Uh, One other precedent I want to mention on the, the foreign affairs side that came up in the administration. And I think it grew out of the foreign intercourse bill in 1790 is the idea that the president can appoint ministers abroad. Um, That seems straightforward. It seems to follow directly from the constitution, but Congress had the idea of, well, we kind of govern how many ministers there are abroad because we have to pay for them. And and this became a bit of a conflict that now we take it for granted that presidents, you know, decide where to to have an ambassadorial presence and where to have a consulate and you know what what staffing the State Department needs. But of course, that that does have to to be funded in an appropriations bill. It didn't necessarily have to be that way. That this could have been developed in the 1790s as almost a purely congressional prerogative. Uh, only subject to the strict letter of the Constitution. How did how did Washington and the cabinet make clear that the executive had the authority for these diplomatic appointments? Well, the way this developed is really fascinating and shows the very organic nature how, how of how so much of the federal government actually continued to evolve after the drafting of the Constitution. So there was a, a distrust at the time of a big fleet of foreign ministers because it was considered to be a trapping of monarchy and one of the problems of corruption and opulence in foreign courts. And so there was a sense that this new republic should not have all of these, you know, very lavishly dressed ministers going to all these foreign courts and participating in behavior that were, was not considered to be virtuous Republican behavior. And this is, of course, little r Republican behavior. 
So Congress wanted to set a fairly measly budget for foreign ministers. But Washington, and I will say Jefferson as well, so the entire ca- the entire administration, they weren't meeting as a cabinet yet, but the entire administration agreed that if that budget was set at a very low amount, it would really limit the president's ability to conduct diplomacy. Because if you have to choose between sending a minister to Spain and Portugal, you're forcing right. the president to make a diplomatic choice. Mm-hmm. And so they basically um, conducted a multi-prong approach where Jefferson went and actually testified in front of a committee in front of Congress about the need for a more expansive budget. And then that Friday, every Friday afternoon when they were in town, Martha Washington hosted what was called a drawing room. And it was basically a social function for sort of elite men and women on Friday afternoons in their their public drawing room. And because she was the host, Washington was present, George was present as a private citizen. Now, this is not really a a social construct we would observe today, but they observed it. It was very important. So they defined it as a as a social gathering at which politics could be discussed, but it was not an inherently official government function. Yes, because women were present and because women were hosting, it was not a political event. It was a semi-public, semi-private event. Now, Obviously, women had opinions about politics. They discussed politics just as they do today. But that was sort of the social political norm at the time. So Washington, recognizing that this was how the customs worked, he could attend as a private citizen. And he went up to a couple of the senators and he explained his concerns about this budget and basically got them to agree to raise the amount of funds. Now, this would have been considered very inappropriate politicking or presidential interference in the legislative branch if he had done so at a public political event. But because Uh, he was there as a private citizen- They were just chatting. So, um, and they totally got their way. And so, you know, Congress decided to increase the amount when the House and the Senate met, they they agreed and they negotiated and they increased the amount. And both George and Jefferson commented on it in their, their notes that they sort of won this battle. But it's a really interesting moment because Jefferson is the one that's advocating for increased executive authority here, which most people don't necessarily associate with his legacy. Yeah, but obviously it was, I guess, where you stand depends on where you sit. Yeah, he was in. <laughs> well, and he had no problem using executive authority once he was president. So. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, <laughs> what, the Louisiana Purchase, kind of most of the country is a, a result yep. of that, right? Yep, totally. Okay. So you've made the point that George Washington, especially you know later in office, did set important precedents for the executive branch um, and, and through the cabinet, right? Through the use of this, this system that he, that he developed. Uh, and you've also pointed out the cabinet meetings, you know, were infrequent early on, but, you know, definitely in that key period, the 1793 timeframe, 50 plus cabinet meetings, an institution that didn't exist formally, um, but it couldn't help but get out in the public. Right. Here's something that in the American consciousness was not a popular thing. It wasn't something people were clamoring for to have part of their their government. Uh, And yet here it is. They can't deny that that's happening, that the president is having these meetings. Was the public okay with this or was there some kind of a backlash to the fact that, you know, we just told you informally, but we just told you guys 
we don't want to do what the British king did because that didn't work out so well for us. And here you are, George, doing that thing. Was there any sense of that in the political discourse? So this was the part of my research that most surprised me because I expected there to be a pretty vociferous backlash. And by 1792, so just, you know, six months into meeting with the cabinet, people were using that language. They were referring to these meetings as cabinet meetings. The participants referred to them as cabinet meetings. So it was pretty, you know, public knowledge. And yet there didn't seem to be this overwhelming public backlash. Now, with one exception, people seemed to accept that Washington needed advice and it was sort of his prerogative to gather people together in a meeting. I suspect the widespread trust for his use of authority and power had something to do with this response. He had already given up power once, very famously. He had shown that he could be trusted with that kind of authority. So maybe people were willing to give him more leeway. However, there was a great deal of criticism from time to time of Alexander Hamilton and how he used his position. And he was often compared to people like Lord North and Robert Walpole, who had been two very powerful prime ministers and were particularly hated by the American people. And the concept was that the institution itself wasn't a problem. But if there was someone in office who had too much power, who was trying to undermine the president, who was trying to meddle in Congress, because yeah. Hamilton, of course, had his financial plans and sort of right. did meddle in Congress to get them passed, that was too British. But it was okay to have a cabinet as long as the the secretaries or the ministers you know, sort of adhered to American norms. And so that's really where I think the criticism was funneled. Yeah. I think it's important that Washington established these precedents, obviously, and that gave them some weight. But precedents don't matter if if nobody follows them. So there's an important role for John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, I would include there, less so for Madison and Monroe after because of the two terms that Jefferson himself had. Um, but there's an important role for Adams and Jefferson because they, by their actions and by their words can either solidify some of these things as precedent, or they can go their own way and hope that it works out, but take on the risk that comes with that. So when it comes to the cabinet structure itself, John Adams is fascinating because John Adams was, was vice president. Now we always see that as part of the executive branch, but the connotation was very different back then as president of the Senate being a, a real duty and activity that most early vice presidents took seriously, more seriously certainly than now, um, that John Adams was not brought into Washington's cabinet. He was not one of these advisors uh, like Hamilton or Jefferson. And then, of course, as they moved on and, and the cabinet evolved. So Adams did not have the experience of working in a functioning cabinet as part of the Washington administration. And yet when he's president, he has a cabinet. Explain how that makes sense. Yeah, and no, it's it's a great it's a great question and one that I'm grappling a lot with with my research right now. You know, I think we, as you pointed out, all of these creations that Washington is responsible for 
could have been forgotten at, or sort of dismissed as interesting historic anomalies had they not continued. And indeed, there are some things that we consider to be interesting historical anomalies. So for example, the levies that he and Adams had on Tuesday afternoons, those are obviously not a part of our political culture anymore. And we kind of, you know, treat them as these quaint little, you know, social things. The concept of a peaceful transition of power. Until last year, most Americans took that for granted. Mm -hmm. Adams, Jefferson, Washington did not. And they were accustomed to transfers of power in Europe being accompanied by war, rebellion, death. They were usually quite bloody. They were not peaceful. And so the concept that you would have a new president was extraordinary. And it cannot be overstated how nerve-wracking that process was because People didn't know if the office would work without Washington in it. They didn't know what the office would look like without Washington in it. That was the only picture they had in their minds. And in fact, I love to, when I'm doing a visual presentation, the portrait that was drawn of John Adams in his first year in office is ghastly because they literally copied and pasted his head onto the very sort of famous portrait of Washington because they didn't know how else to draw, you know, a presidential portrait. And Mm -hmm. it looks ridiculous. (laughs) So, I mean, I think it's a really great demonstration that there were just all of these questions about what was going to come next. And you have the rise of, you know, partisan faction and division. There's the threat of war with France. So this is an incredibly tense moment. And Adams walks in and I think anyone would have had a terrible time coming second. There's no doubt that that position just sucked. And he knew it and he did it anyway. And so he came into office and he decided to keep the cabinet secretaries that Washington had at the end of his administration. He didn't say why, but I think because he wanted to provide some continuity. He wanted to provide some stability. He wanted to provide um, to preserve institutional knowledge, to provide some sort, you know, sense of calm for the American people. And he didn't want his actions to be seen as a repudiation of anything Washington had done because, you know, at this point he's he's given up power now for the second time. And so like he's been vaulted into this incredible stratosphere mm-hmm. of, right. you know, deification. So Adams didn't want to be seen as criticizing him in any way, but I do think there was a real in theory, a good concept of trying to provide some of that stability. You don't want to change horses midstream. So he kept the secretaries, he kept the cabinet, but as you said, he had never been in a cabinet meeting. He had actually never really had any sort of executive position. He had this incredible- knew how Washington ran his cabinet meetings more than Adams did. Correct. Adams was never present at a cabinet meeting. And even though Washington, and we can talk about why, but Washington- turned away from cabinet meetings towards the end of his administration a little bit, they had been present. They knew that they were what it, what it looked like. They knew how much individual authority was held by the president. They knew sort of the very careful attention that Washington gave, even when he delegated power. Adams had never had an executive position before. He had been a diplomat. He had been in Congress. He had never had to manage people. And he thought that these secretaries would remain loyal to the office, not understanding how much hands-on management was going to be required to make it work. So Adams ends up, you know, with a cabinet. Jefferson, given the Adams-Jefferson relationship and how much Jefferson consciously wanted to do many things differently, Jefferson could have taken a different tack. And yet Jefferson had 
similar cabinet meetings too, didn't he? Well, Jefferson writes this incredible letter just a few months into his presidency, explaining to the secretaries how he saw the cabinet working and how he wanted their interactions to be structured. And what he basically said was, I want to model our cabinet meetings after Washington's first term. Cabinet meetings are going to be fairly rare, which they were in Washington's first term, only when there's a very tricky subject that comes up. Otherwise, we will have one-on-one consultations and deal with matters in, in writing. And he stuck to that plan. He felt that he was taking the best from what he had observed in Washington's administration and avoiding the mistakes in Washington's second term and then avoiding the mistakes of Adams' term. And watch, and Jefferson never actually met with the cabinet all that much. I think the high point was, I think it was like 12 meetings one year, maybe 14 meetings one year. And that was during the Louisiana Purchase period. Um, and then again, during the embargo in 1807. So that's, you know, not even one meeting a week. That's, you know, one meeting every month, maybe. And he was very meticulous about what those cabinet meetings looked like. He wanted to make sure they weren't the battles that he had hated so much. He wanted to make sure they were productive. He actually did a remarkably good job of managing his cabinet. He was His cabinet was a really effective tool of outreach and uh, congressional liaison and you know, really an amazing tool for the administration. But it was a very careful cultivation. And it was actually a a natural segue from what I think sort of the the final precedent that Washington left for, for the cabinet, which is that the cabinet should shift over time, depending on what the president's needs are. You shouldn't have to meet as much in times of peace as in times of war. You shouldn't have to meet when there isn't a crisis as much as when there is. And yeah. how a cabinet works should reflect how a president likes to make decisions. And so Jefferson took that flexibility and ran with it. And the presidents who have had the best relationships with their cabinets have done so. Yeah, I think it, the, the evolution after that is just fascinating because you've established by the end of Jefferson's presidency, the cabinet's a thing. There, there's been no yeah. major opposition to it from people either of the the strong Federalist side or the emerging Democratic Republican side. Um, it's a thing. Deal with it. How it's used, however could still be flexible based on the personality of the president, the nature of the times, and even political philosophy, such that the Whigs, as they emerge, end up taking an idea, if I have it right, that the cabinets actually matter more, that the presidents should should really have this decision-making council, such that when you have William Harrison, who is not remembered much as a president, because he just didn't do the job very long, but in his in his presidency short that it existed the idea was that cabinet members would vote on decisions and the president would go with the majority of the cabinet uh washington had only the extreme of that which i i think you've noted that if washington found that everyone in his cabinet opposed something even if he thought it was a good idea um it, it would change his opinion but harrison's policy was you know what? I'm here to execute the will of the cabinet as voted in a majority, which is which is a much more British British construction. Yeah, of that takes it to the, the very cabinet. thing that 50 years earlier was was being avoided. Um, and even a nominal Whig like John Tyler, uh, not not a Whig in the same sense as as William Harrison, but when he became president upon the death of Harrison, uh, Daniel Webster, the Secretary of State, famously told him 
that, you know, Harrison and the cabinet members, you know, voted on decisions here and Harrison would go with the majority. So you, you need to do that too. And Tyler very much said, you know, no, I am the president. I'm responsible for my administration. So essentially walking this back because it was not in law. It was not anything that the president had to follow. The president could use a cabinet as he damn well saw fit. Uh, But probably in the American consciousness, the next American cabinet that gets attention, thanks to Doris Kearns Goodwin, is is Lincoln's. And the idea of the team of rivals, um, Lincoln evolved his views of the cabinet and how to use them. But, but definitely wanted to get advice, being perhaps the least experienced president uh, up to that point. Um, how do you think Lincoln built on the legacy of Washington and, to some extent, Adams, Jefferson, and, and the others in between to get to a cabinet that worked for him during the very trying times he presided over? Yeah, well, so, you know, what's as you said, what's remarkable about Lincoln is not so much that he had a team of rivals, because that was actually sort of standard political practice up until that point. You selected your, your secretaries from sort of the leaders of your party. And in fact, that's why we had so many secretaries of state that went on to become the next president, because it was sort of deemed the, you know, person in waiting. But what was remarkable about Lincoln was, as you said, he was the least experienced and least well-known of all of those secretaries, and he was in the top position. And most people in that circumstance would have been managed or destroyed by their cabinet. And instead, he managed to cultivate very good, very respectful relationships with most of his secretaries, even people who were you know, really initially set out to oppose him, and managed the very diverse viewpoints and ambitions and goals and egos that he surrounded himself with. He built on Washington's precedent by doing the same thing. Like he desperately wanted advice from different viewpoints. And he saw the cabinet as an opportunity in the same way that Washington did by making sure that there was diversity included in that position. Now, today from, you know, 2022, we look at this and we say, they're all white guys. How diverse really can it be? But for Washington, you know, he picked people that represented different educational, religious, uh, cultural, economic, different regions factional. of the country, quite conscious. Yeah, exactly. So quite literally geographic, but then also different, yeah. basically different ways to be an American, different walks mm-hmm. of life in the American experience. And Lincoln did the same thing, including geographic diversity. He was the first president to have a secretary west of the Mississippi. But he also pulled from all the different parts of union. So he didn't care if you were a former Democrat. He only cared if you were pro-union. So in, in those ways, he sort of directly modeled himself off of Washington. He had a more, you know, down-to-earth, homespun approach to building those relationships because that's who he was. But he took the same concept of the importance of morale and esprit de corps. He regularly sought out one-on-one conversations. He would walk with his secretaries to their office as a way to demonstrate that he cared about what they had to say. And that's a really important part of maintaining relationships, especially mm-hmm. in the middle of war when there's you know so much tension. The president demonstrating to people that he cared what what they had to offer was was noticeable. Right. What a difference from that to the modern day because the cabinet now, it's its fascinating to me that even within our lifetimes, there are people who wanted a job in the administration 
you know, secretary of state, secretary of defense, um, didn't get it, got some other job, but said, you know, what matters to me is having cabinet status. You know, I want to be Mm -hmm. a member of the cabinet. And so you have not only the vast expansion of executive departments in the cabinet, right? So you have secretary of agriculture, even back in Lincoln's time, but not on the cabinet. Then you have secretaries who are brought into the cabinet, which is largely seen as all of the heads of the executive departments. But other presidents include other jobs, you know, small business administrator, CIA director. They can put them on their cabinet because there is no law governing who's on the cabinet. But it's essentially meaningless to be on the cabinet, right? Nothing formally comes of being on the cabinet other than you being able to walk around with your shoulders a little higher saying, I'm in the president's cabinet without even referring to how important it is as a decision-making body, which isn't much for most modern presidents, is it? Yeah, that's right. So you you mentioned that, you know, the cabinet isn't written down. And to this day, it's not. There are very few mentions in constitutional amendments. And there has been some, you know, statutory reform about what should be uh, an executive department and that kind of thing. But there's no rule that says the president has to have a cabinet, has to meet with a cabinet, has to talk with a cabinet, has to take the cabinet's advice. And one of the key differences between the American version and the British version, because of course they both still exist, the British cabinet is composed of people who hold a seat in parliament. So they have important political power. They have important congressional, I mean, they don't have Congress, but, you know, parliamentary authority. So they have to be listened to. They have to be, you know, accounted for in order for the prime minister to retain that authority. So their, their opinions inherently matter a lot more. Whereas, as you said, what matters for an advisor today in the cabinet is not what the position is called or what level it is, but their relationship with the president. Mm -hmm. And so if they're really close and they have the president's number such that they can circumvent all the yep. people that work in, you know, the West Wing, they can be a really powerful, important advisor. And they can be the secretary of defense. But if the president doesn't like them much and had to de- appoint them for sort of political reasons, yep. they matter a lot less because their phone calls are not going to get taken. So, you know, I think it's it's one of those things that makes the institution so interesting because it is so personal. It is so individualized. And it also, I think, is one of the best ways to study a presidency because it really actually reveals like what's going on at the heart of administrations. Right. Even even the 25th Amendment, which in, in terms of casual explanation, people often use the word cabinet for the decision-making body that the vice president must agree with in order to declare the president unable. Um, it, it isn't the cabinet. It's, it's the heads of the executive departments, which you know, similar to the cabinet, usually uh, coterminous, but not necessarily such. There is there is nothing for the cabinet, which, I mean, in my national security experience, I cannot remember a time where, you know, the, the cabinet was an important decision-making body for foreign policy or national security, the way that we've discussed it was for Washington uh, in many cases. And Lincoln during the Civil War in many cases had some meetings like this. But now, I mean, with the National Security Act of 1947, you know, as amended, you you have a formal structure for national security decision making. And even that, some presidents disregard. Uh, George H.W. Bush in planning for the, the Gulf War, the national security, formal National Security Council really didn't matter despite the legislation. It was 
his small group that he would gather, which was not coterminous with the cabinet or with the formal National Security Council. Nothing can stop the president from using a decision-making mechanism that he or she finds works best for the circumstances and for personal preference. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the last president who probably operated with the cabinet as a foreign policy decision-making body the way it was intended was maybe FDR. But even then, he was pretty particular about his cabinet, and he Mm. rarely called them together as a group and often played them off of each other. So, um, you know, he had a very unique touch with the cabinet. You know, I think uh, in terms of the foreign policy, another great example is JFK. There, Mm. There were the same positions. There was a national security advisor and there were all these things, but he had his own way of making decisions that sometimes involved cabinet members like his brother, the attorney general, and sometimes didn't. And, um, you know, I think this is one of, it was certainly not, I think, a precedent that Washington could anticipate how it developed. He was, Mm -hmm. he was very aware of his inability to predict the future, but he felt that advisors needed to suit the president to do the job to the best of their ability. Mm-hmm. And that core concept, as you just demonstrated, really still governs the presidency. The president gets their advice from where they want to. And those relationships don't have a whole lot of congressional or public oversight, mm-hmm. which sometimes that flexibility works great. We've mentioned some of the, you know, the really the big names, the Lincolns, the FDRs. I would maybe even throw in Theodore Roosevelt in there. Sometimes it really doesn't. Sometimes the weakness of an administration or a presidency, the cabinet can really undermine that. You know, Harding is a great example. The cabinet mm-hmm. was right. kind of a catastrophe. Um, certainly there have been, I, I would argue actually JFK's cabinet was a liability. Same with mm-hmm. Nixon, of course. And so, you know, I think that that is a part of the presidency. We don't grapple with a whole lot and we need to because it often is at the center of all of the big things that are happening in an administration. Right. It shows such an evolution, doesn't it, that Washington, when things really mattered, he used the cabinet. Modern presidents, when things really matter, don't. John Kennedy created the, you know, the XCOM for the Cuban Missile Crisis, not the cabinet. Um, Wartime for Bush 41, not the cabinet. It's, I, I suppose it's possible to imagine a president reinstituting the cabinet as a, almost a decision making body. But it'd be really weird to have, you know, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, the Secretary of Energy, the Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of Labor, uh, the Secretary of Commerce, you know, have all of them weigh in on the most crucial war uh, choices. That doesn't seem right. In fact, the cabinet seems more relegated now and much more likely to stay as an occasional photo op to get the secretaries together to give a statement with all the cameras there and then inform them about some guiding principle of government and, you know, take pictures and shake hands. Uh, Very different than the body that, that Washington first created, even though it has the same name. Yeah. And, you know, I think that evolution speaks to some of the broader developments in the executive branch, the professionalization of the executive departments and the executive Mm -hmm. leadership. We expect 
most department secretaries to have had a career in that field such that they can be good managers of those departments, which doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be good advisors. The, you know That gets Absolutely. at the heart of this weird position where these secretaries are supposed to be both experts in their field and good managers, but also good advisors to the president. And those are often conflicting goals. So it gets at sort of the weird nature and the expansion in general of the executive branch to encompass all of these elements of, you know, modern life. There are occasionally nods to the historic example. So, you know, Tony Blinken is in some ways a very Washingtonian Secretary of State. He's one of the president's closest friends. He's one of the president's closest advisors, and he's in, you know, the old school, most prestigious position. So it does occasionally happen. It just doesn't happen as much as it used to. Uh, let's close out on this President's Day uh, on on a related matter. You know, what if if Washington, you know, were to somehow transport to today and leave aside what he thinks of electricity and the and the internet and automobiles, you know, all that, but just on the mechanism of government, um, certainly the the scale of the executive branch would almost knock him over hard to knock over a man of his physical stature, but it probably would physically shock him. Um, but what else do you think he would make of the decision-making structures within the executive branch and the relation of the executive branch to particularly the article one legislature, um, when it comes to foreign policy decision-making, uh, would he recognize enough of it that he could almost trace the evolution in his mind or would he just be blown away at how different it all looks from what what he experienced. Well, I mean, I do think, you know, the starting point would just be incredible shock. I don't want to say disbelief in in the negative because I think he was he and and the fa- most of the founding j- generation was very were very clear about the fact that they knew that there were problems they hadn't solved and there were things that they hadn't managed and that amendment was supposed to happen and change was supposed to happen because they wanted the country and and the people and and the government institutions to evolve as the world changed. So I don't think he necessarily would be judgmental about the expansion and scope of the government, or at least he would not immediately be judgmental. I think that the president's primary role in diplomacy and Congress's real willingness to take a back seat wouldn't surprise him all that much because that was very much the relationship that he had kind of navigated and and intentionally crafted himself. He wanted the president to be the primary voice in foreign policy. Congress's general lack of oversight would probably be a a bit of a surprise. There are moments when Congress appears to show some effort at at regaining that position, but he fully expected oversight. And that was Mm -hmm. a part of the the government in the 1790s. The last piece that I think would surprise him and would be a disappointment is there was a concept in the 1790s that the best men were supposed to serve. And service was a part of your sacrifice. It was a part of Republican virtue. Again, this is little r Republican virtue. And it wasn't supposed to be fun. It wasn't supposed to enrich you. Mm. It wasn't, he didn't like being president. He hated it. He wanted to go home so bad but he felt that he had to. And I think he was right. I think he was the only person that could have been the first president to sort of hold all these pieces together. So he understood that service quite literally meant sacrifice. And he would lament that loss of duty among many senior government officials. 
yeah, I think that that would be the real, the biggest surprise for so many of the founding generation was that they didn't want people to run for office because those individuals wanted personal power or right. prestige or glory or riches. They wanted it to be about duty and sacrifice and service. And that was what you were supposed to do. And, and let me add one here that maybe you'll agree with or not, but I think he would be disgusted by the expansion and abuse of executive privilege, which he, he saw a vital need for in the most crucial matters of secret negotiations and things. Um, but the abuse of executive privilege, um, especially with regards to impeachment, with which you noted earlier, he felt on issues of impeachment, Congress had a, uh, a lower bar to get over for certain executive documents. But in the most recent impeachment, the absolute lack of I mean, you had you had Congress not even calling witnesses for the first impeachment. You had the lack of provision of materials and the executive resisting uh, reasonable efforts. Um, I think Washington would find that disgusting. Yeah, he would. Executive privilege was never intended to be a get out of jail free card or a way to avoid any sort of accountability. Yeah. Washington believed firmly in government accountability mm-hmm. and the accountability of leaders to the American people. He, you know, when there were questions about whether or not Alexander Hamilton had done things wrong, he welcomed the investigations to because he wanted this person that he he did care about to be um, you know, proven innocent. And so he welcomed that sort of accountability and felt that it was a crucial part of a republic. You could not have civilian authority if you didn't have accountability to the people. And he believed in that at the heart of everything that he did. Yeah. Well, we close out on chatter by pulling out our chatter box here and reaching in for a random question. Lindsay. Please recommend any recent book you've read, podcast you've listened to, or TV show you have watched. Oh, this is like making making historians choose their favorite book is like making them choose their <laughs> well, favorite. Well, thankfully, child. it doesn't have to be your favorite. It can be just <laughs> any recent one that you want to call That's out true. for any reason, or something that catches your eye as you look around your office. What what is it that that you have seen or read recently that you'd like to call attention to? Can I cheat and give two? I think we'll let you have that privilege. Okay, thanks. Um, so I have been expanding my reading about you know presidential cabinets more broadly. And I, as I said, I think it's the most important way to really evaluate an administration. So recently I've been doing a lot of reading about Theodore Roosevelt and his cabinet and the very colorful personality that was. Um, you know, you, you will never be bored reading about Theodore <laughs> Roosevelt ever. Um, So a book that I really love, I think the best one volume book about Theodore Roosevelt is called Theodore Roosevelt, A Strenuous Life Mm -hmm. by Kathleen Dalton. Um, There are a lot of, you know, really excellent books on on him, but I think that's the best one volume version really brings to life his pizzazz. And then the second thing I would say, um, you know, I, I am a historian. I do you know, do most of my studies in the past, but I think it's so important to continue our reading about the contemporary moment. And Mm -hmm. that's how I can, you know, draw these connections. So I think you've maybe done some interviews with her, but I recently read um, Fiona Hill's book. There's no, there's nothing Mm -hmm. for you here. And um, she's such an inspiring person (laughs) and makes me feel like such a slacker in general. Um, But I think that that story and, and the value of public service and duty that we were just talking about is, is a really incredible one. 
Yeah, those those are wonderful recommendations. And this has been a wonderful chat. It has been fascinating to hear these details and think about how these things have evolved since then and affect, you know, national security and foreign policy decision making across the years. We really appreciate you taking so much time to talk about these things with us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm always happy to nerd out about presidential history anytime. So that is uh, it was great fun for me as well. Thank you. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. <laughs>